Praise the Lord. What a joy it is to be involved in the global advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sends us on his mission. God is calling the nations to himself. And Morocco is a place that has a very special place in the heart of this church. And you're going to be hearing more about Morocco after this team returns and even opportunities to visit with our servants, Bill and Rosemary Roop, at the end of the month of September. Just this week, Dave Soper and I had the joy of seeing Nepali believers, believers from Nepal who are now living in the United States. There are 27,000 Nepali immigrants in the city of Columbus, Ohio, many more in places like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Louisville, Kentucky, Akron, Ohio, even a Nepali church here in St. Charles, right in downtown St. Charles. And we were able to see a whole group of church leaders who have been trained in the word to preach God's word with God's heart through word partners. And it was such a joy. As they sang, we didn't understand uh, many of the words, but Alleluia is the same in every language. Praise the Lord. And we were able to join with them in that great exclamation of praise because they once were blind, but now they see. And they were rejoicing in the life they have in Christ. And that brings us to our theme this morning. We're going to hear Jesus speak to us about a sight for sore eyes, a vision that will transform you forever. Imagine what the most breathtaking sight you could possibly see in this world might be. What are you thinking of right now? Maybe the Grand Tetons or an emerald sea on a beautiful tropical beach. Or maybe it's a sunset over the Great Plains. Or maybe you're thinking about a newborn baby. Whatever it is that you're imagining, Jesus is going to tell us about something infinitely more satisfying, more comforting, more transforming than you could possibly imagine. It's a sight that you were created to behold, a sight that you were created to be captured by in speechless awe. I heard Pastor Brett Wendell say, knowing you will have this vision someday changes every day from now until then. But not everyone gets this vision. Jesus is an amazing vision caster in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And I want his vision to become our reality as we listen to his word this morning. Let's speak together in unison Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Let's say it all together. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's pray. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. We want to see you. Please shine into these hearts and give the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Christ by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Who are the people who are truly flourishing, according to Jesus? Who are the truly, deeply happy people in this world? The ones we should want to be like? The ones we should emulate? Those who are pure in heart. And why are they the ones who are truly flourishing? Because they will see God. 
happy, flourishing, enviable are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here's the main point from this morning's sermon. It is not the condition of your eyes, but the condition of your heart that determines your vision of God. You know who Helen Keller was. She suffered a disease at the age of 19 months that left her completely blind and deaf. But amazingly, she learned to communicate and she became a champion for the blind and deaf, deaf until her death and at the age of 87 years old. And sometimes people would come up to her and feel sorry for her and say things like, how terrible it must be to be blind. But Helen Keller would respond, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. Or in another famous quote, she said, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Isn't that the truth? How many people are there in the world today who have two good eyes, yet they can see nothing of what really ultimately matters, nothing of the glory and beauty and majesty and goodness of God? They are blind to what matters most. Well, Jesus is bringing us good news this morning. It's the good news of a God who can be seen. And Jesus teaches us how this vision of God can be cultivated. It's through purity of heart. And my guess is that some of us are already squirming. I doubt anyone would immediately raise their hand and say, yes, that's me. I am pure in heart. When it comes to being poor in spirit, many of us can identify with that. But pure in heart? That seems to require a miracle of grace. Seeing God, that seems to require another miracle of grace. And here's where we need to remember that the Beatitudes aren't a job description of something you have to achieve before you can enter into God's kingdom. No, the Beatitudes are the invitation of grace from a wise Savior who's showing us what it looks like to flourish in his kingdom. Jesus isn't mocking us here with an impossible standard. He's not presenting us with a strenuous moral code and commanding us to try really, really hard, and no matter how hard you try, you're never going to hit the, the mark. Instead, he's inviting us into a new kind of life a newness of life that is shaped by his presence and his grace and his power reigning over us and in us and through us. So if it is not the condition of your eyes, but the condition of your heart that determines your vision of God, and if this is a grace-based invitation, not a recipe for despair, then how can we live into this newness of life and experience this kind of flourishing? 
That's what I hope you'll be desiring and wanting to pursue as we're molded and shaped by the the wisdom of Jesus this morning. So let's chew on and assimilate his life-giving words in two parts. First, the greatest good, and secondly, the greatest grace. What is the greatest good? According to Jesus, it can be summed up in four words. They shall see God. That is what we were made for. To see the one who made us and who made the whole universe, to behold him, to be ravished by his beauty, to be awestruck by his majesty, to be transformed by the tenderness of his grace. Throughout church history, believers have said that the vision of God is the highest good. It's the greatest honor. It's the most sublime dignity that a human being can experience. It's what Moses longed for but couldn't attain. Remember back in Exodus chapter 33, Moses said to the Lord, please let me see your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. That's a pretty big obstacle, isn't it? Humans cannot see me And live, the Lord says to Moses. But it won't be like this forever. Because Jesus promises that the pure in heart will see God. And we know this is where history is heading. When someone asks you, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? It's hard to answer that question, isn't it? I I, I would guess that about every other sermon, I'm telling you, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But this time... This time, I'm really going to give you one of the top five. It's what I preached at my Nana Hazel's funeral 10 years ago. It's about heaven's chief attraction. And it's found in Revelation 22, verse 4. What will be the chief attraction of the life to come in the new heavens and the new earth? Here it is. They will see his face. They will see his face. Peace. Dear believer, this is what your heart is throbbing for. This is what you long for. It's to come before the throne of God and of the Lamb and to worship him and to see his face. And every other desire and every other care and every other appetite you'll ever have will evaporate and disappear before this breathtaking sight when you see his face. I came upon a beautiful passage from the early church leader, Augustine, this week. Listen to how he put it. Whatever we do, whatever good deeds we perform, whatever we strive to accomplish, whatever we laudably yearn for, whatever we blamelessly desire, we shall no longer be seeking any of those things when we reach the vision of God. 
Indeed, what would one search for when one has God before one's eyes? Or what would satisfy one who would not be satisfied with God? Yes, we wish to see God. Who does not have this desire? We strive to see God. We are on fire with the desire of seeing God. Just that sentence, I thought I loved to hear an African-American preach that. We are on fire with the desire of seeing God. That is a wonderful statement. And God is the one who lit that fire. And Jesus is assuring us that this fire of burning desire was lit by a God who intends to satisfy the desire he created. Your desire to see God isn't a lust that you need to mortify and put to death. It's a purifying desire that God wants to kindle and keep ablaze in your heart. And one of the ways God keeps that fire burning is by giving us glimpses of his grace and glory and goodness and beauty right here and right now. When Jesus tells us that the pure in heart will see God, I don't believe he intends for us to think of this as an experience reserved only for the life to come far off in the future. He is certainly pointing us forward to his kingdom in the new heavens and in the new earth. But he's also inviting us into an experience of flourishing that will transform our lives here and now. If you long to see God, he's not going to keep you in the waiting room until you die. He's eager and willing to welcome you into his presence right now. There is a vision of God that you don't have to wait for until heaven to see. It's not as glorious as it will be in heaven. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now we see indirectly, but then we will see directly. But this mediated indirect vision of the glory of God is still the most transforming, beautiful sight you could possibly see in this lifetime, and it's worth pursuing with all your heart. How do we see God today? How do we get this indirect but very real vision of God today? I believe the Apostle Paul is taking us by the hand and leading us toward an answer to that question in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Look at what he says. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, you remember that story of Moses, he went up on the mountain with God. He wanted to see God, but God told him he couldn't see his face and live. Well, God did not leave Moses disappointed up on that mountain. He took Moses, he hid him in the cleft of the rock, and the Lord caused his glory to pass by Moses. Moses didn't get to look on God's face, but he did get to see God's back. And he heard God's voice as the Lord proclaimed his name to Moses and his gracious and merciful character, and it left Moses awestruck. 
But do you remember what Moses had to do as he came down that mountain to go meet with the people? He had to put a veil over his face. And why did he have to put a veil over his face? It was so that they could not see the glory that was fading. Moses didn't want them to see the fading glory. What is Paul saying now? In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he's saying we believers in Jesus, we don't have a veil over our face anymore. We can gaze upon the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, but the glory we see will not fade. To the contrary, Paul says we will be transformed into the image of the one we behold, and that transformation will happen with ever-increasing glory in our lives. That's what he's saying. When we gaze upon the glory of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit is working in us to make us more and more like Jesus. We are becoming what we are beholding. So how do we gaze upon the glory of Jesus? as in a mirror today. We do it when we open his word and ask him to show us Christ in the pages of scripture. This this book is like a mirror in which we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we listen to him and meditate on him and adore him for who he is, And then we come together and we gaze on his glory and we worship him in song and we listen to his voice. And as we're listening, we're saying, speak, Lord, and and renew our minds and transform us. And then we come to his table and he feeds us with the emblems of his crucified body and blood. And we enter into conversation with him in prayer and speak to our Lord Jesus and to his father as our father and commune with him as a friend with friend. In all of these experiences, we are seeing God who is invisible through faith. And as we see him who is invisible, he's preparing us to meet him face to face when we finally are with him in glory. This is a glorious experience which will be your greatest good, fully in the age to come and partly and in a very real way right now. The experience of seeing him who is invisible and seeing God will change the way you see everything else. But there is a condition to this glorious vision without which you cannot see God's glory at all. The writer of the Hebrews makes it crystal clear. He says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Jesus says something very similar in this beatitude. He doesn't say that everyone will see God. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That brings us from the first point, our greatest good, to the second point, the greatest grace. The greatest grace. If seeing God is the prize, purity of heart is the pursuit. Because it is the condition of my heart that determines my vision of God. 
The heart is the lens through which we see God. And if your lens is impure, it's like rubbing dirt all over the lens of a camera. Every image will be distorted and it will be obscured. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the muscle or the organ in our bodies. It's In the Bible, the heart is the wellspring of life. It's the source of your affections, your desires, your motivations, your decisions. It's the core of who you are, the essence of you. In order to see God, Jesus is saying that you and I need to be purified. We need to be cleansed at the core of our being. And this is a purity that Jesus is calling us to pursue, to cultivate. It comes through welcoming his reign in our lives, saying, Lord Jesus, have your way with me and in me. Reign over me, reign in me, transform me, change me from deep within. So what does it mean to have a pure heart? First of all, we have to be clear about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean sinless perfection in this life. It doesn't mean you're never going to struggle with a bad thought or that you're going to be perfect in all your ways. That's not going to happen until you get to heaven. If that's what Jesus meant, that then none of us would be able to see God at all because John says, if any of us claims to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A.W. Pink wisely counseled, purity of heart is not sinlessness of life. So if it's not sinless perfection, then what is it? It's two things, and this is not an either or, pick one or the other. This is a both and. Purity of heart means a heart that is clean from the inside out as opposed to a heart that is just doing external religious rituals, going through the motions, doing right things. Jesus would not be happy to live in a community where no one committed adultery and no one committed murder because the hearts of people would still be full of lust and anger. Jesus isn't just concerned about the outward, he's concerned about the inward. And that's a very important theme. We see it right in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough to say, I don't commit adultery. Jesus wants to know, where's your heart? Is your heart lusting after another person's spouse? Well, then you've already committed adultery in your heart, he says. It's not enough to say, well, I haven't, I haven't knifed my neighbor in the back. Jesus wants to know, do you love your neighbor? Oh, but he's mean, he's rude. Jesus, oh, no, no, love your enemies. Because it's from the heart that, that Jesus is concerned. He, it's not enough to just say, I haven't hurt anyone. Have you spoken ill? Have you expressed hatred? These are the things he's concerned about. And in Matthew chapter 23, he goes after the Pharisees because they were all concerned about the outward things, but their hearts were far from God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup 
so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see what Jesus is going after here? The hypocrisy of focusing only on outward appearances. A pure heart is a heart that's being cleansed from within. Not only doing the right behaviors, but having holy and pure desires motivated by love for God and love for our neighbor and the glory of God. That, that's one aspect of purity of heart. But there's another very important aspect as well. Purity of heart also means an undivided heart. A heart that is single-minded. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a little book with this title. Purity of heart is to will one thing. That's a really good description of purity of heart. If the one thing we will is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. It's impossible to have that inward moral purity without a single-minded devotion to God or to have a single-minded devotion to God without inward moral purity. If we're focused on Jesus, if he's our focus, our hearts will become cleansed. And if our hearts are cleansed, we will be single-minded in our devotion to Jesus. It's this single-minded devotion that Jesus probably had in mind when he said, blessed are the pure in heart. I'm almost sure that he had Psalm 24 in his mind when he spoke this beatitude. And it's the psalm that asks this question. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? What's the answer? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. What does a pure heart look like? It's a heart that has not appealed or lifted up its soul to what is false. It's a heart that has not sworn deceitfully. Why do we appeal to what is false? Why do we swear deceitfully? We do these things because our hearts are divided. We will to do one thing and we desire one thing, but we want to give the appearance that we are doing something else. We want people to think that we're feeling one thing when we're really feeling something else. That's what an impure heart is. It's a heart that's divided between competing loyalties, competing desires. We see this in James chapter 4, verse 8 as well. Listen to what James says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So an impure heart is a double-minded heart. In James 4, it's a heart that claims to love God, but is really in love with the world. And James says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. You can't be in both minds. One pastor describes purity of heart like this, Colin Smith. He says, a pure heart is a heart that thinks what is right, loves what is good, 
and desires what is best. Wow. A heart that thinks what is right, loves what is good, and desires what is best. Anyone squirming? This kind of presents a problem, doesn't it? I was reading Proverbs last week, and these words stood out to me. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure? I am cleansed from my sin. Can you say that? I certainly don't want to make that boast. I resonate with the confession of the Russian novelist who said this, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. I don't think any one of us would want to have our thoughts of the last 24 hours put on the screen to be revealed to the congregation this morning. So I want to cultivate this purity of heart because I long to see the glory of God, but, but all I can really do is pray like we did this morning. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Because left to myself, these seem like two impossibilities. Purity of heart and seeing God. Left to myself, I, I, I am disqualified from both. And that's where the grace of Jesus enters in and connects what seems impossible to us. I love how Colin Smith put it. He said, the apparent impossibility of these two things, seeing God and purity of heart, show us how great a Savior Jesus Christ is. I mean, think about it. Jesus is the only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place with clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus qualifies. He is the only one who can see the Father, indeed has from eternity beheld the face of his Father and will see the face of his Father forever and live in his presence continually. That's Jesus who qualifies. He's the only one whose heart is pure and free from all sin. He kept his heart free from sin. And then what did Jesus do? Listen to this wonderful gospel statement from Titus chapter 2. Verse 14, what did the pure and holy, undefiled, spotless Lamb of God do? He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and, underscore this, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous to do good works. That's what Jesus did. He gave himself for our sins to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Praise his name for that. So, because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross, we can come to God with all our impurity and we can experience 
total cleansing. When we put our trust in Jesus and in his work on the cross, God cleanses our hearts through faith. That comes from Acts 15, verse 9. God cleanses our hearts through faith. I love how John describes it in 1 John 1, verse 9. It's so simple, yet so complete and profound. We know this verse from our childhood, if you've grown up in the church. But let's all say it together for the sake of the kids from Awana who are getting ready to go back in in a couple weeks. Let's, let's refresh our scripture memory here, okay? See if you can say 1 John 1, 9 without even looking. But if you need to peek, let's do it together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You realize that in that little verse, three precious gospel gifts are contained, justification, forgiveness, and cleansing, all in one verse. It doesn't say just he is faithful to forgive us our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because when Jesus died on that cross for all who would ever believe in him, what did God do? God the judge dropped all the charges that were against us. We had such a record. We came into the courtroom of his majesty condemned. But the judge says, I'm dropping all those charges because someone has stood in their place and paid the debt. And God would be unjust to demand twice payment for sins that have already been paid for. So justification means God drops all the charges against us, but it's not just that. Forgiveness is also part of this. That's a relational thing. God reconciles us to himself so that he is no longer holding any grudges against us. But it's not just that. There's something that God wants us in the innermost being, even in our psyche, to experience, having been justified and forgiven, he wants us to experience his ongoing cleansing so that the stench and the stain and the filth and the shame of the sins that we have committed and, and, and hatefully to us, but, but we still will commit, we can experience his ongoing cleansing from these things and, and, and begin to experience what it's like to have a heart that is pure before God, beautiful and whole in his sight. So I want us to close this morning about thinking, thinking about what a difference it makes when you hear this beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When you hear these words as someone who's been justified, forgiven, and cleansed through Jesus. And his spirit lives in you, and you are trusting in him to purify your heart through faith. What, what happens when you really believe this gospel? It makes the pursuit of purity an exercise of hope, not an exercise of futility and despair. Since we have these gospel promises, Paul says, 
2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So how do we do that? How do we cleanse ourselves from every impurity of flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God? I want to just trace out two ways the gospel helps us do this. First, the gospel enables us to be disarmingly honest, disarmingly honest in admitting the impurity that still remains in our lives. The gospel frees you to be disarmingly honest in stripping off the mask, admitting what you're struggling with, naming and opposing particular sins in your life. How actively are you practicing the honesty of admitting your impurity? Here's the reality. If you and I cannot name two or three particular sins that we are confessing and opposing and seeking to overcome, if we can't name those things, we're probably not pursuing purity very purposefully. Let me ask you, church, is this, our community, a place where you can be disarmingly honest? Or is church a place where you feel like you got to put on your best behavior on Sunday mornings and put on a mask so that other Christians will see you at your best? When you learn to start looking at the world and at yourself through the lens of the gospel of grace, then you can realize what Philip Yancey wrote about when he said, imperfection is the prerequisite for grace. It's the prerequisite. Light only gets in through the cracks. You got to take off the mask so the light can get in. Just think about it. Do you have two or three people in your life who would right now be pretty aware of what you're confessing and fighting against. They know the sins that you struggle with. And if you don't have two or three people like that, could that mean that you're more interested in putting up a good impression than you are in pursuing purity from the heart? Who are the believers who know you well enough to pray with you and for you in your pursuit of a pure heart? Who can join you in walking in the light, a way of life that Dane Orland calls exhaling the carbon dioxide of our failures and inhaling the oxygen of grace? Who, who walks with you in that pursuit? Believing the gospel enables us to do that, to be disarmingly honest about where we still fall short. And then secondly, believing the gospel moves us to be joyfully relentless in killing our sins. Joyfully relentless. Because of the promise, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So for believers in Jesus, no matter how impure our hearts may be today, we've already been purified by God through faith. And one day we're going to see him face to face. And I love how John puts it. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. 
we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And the effect that has on our lives, knowing that's where we're heading, John says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So this pursuit of purity, it's a joyful, hope-fueled pursuit for more nearness with God. I've been thinking this week about an article that appeared in the Leadership Journal way back in 1982. It was written then by an anonymous pastor who had been for many years in bondage to gross pornography. He felt tremendous guilt and shame. But that guilt and shame was never enough to free him from his lust. But one day, it was this beatitude from Jesus that penetrated his heart like a quickening ray. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That came into the prison cell of his addiction. And here's how he described it. The thought hit me like a bell rung in a dark, silent hall. So far, none of the scary negative arguments against lust had succeeded in keeping me from it. But here was a description of what I was missing by continuing to harbor lust. I was limiting my own intimacy with God. The love he offers is so transcendent and possessing that it requires our faculties to be purified and cleansed before we can possibly contain it. Could he, in fact, substitute another thirst and another hunger for the one I had never filled? Would living water somehow quench lust? And he told of how this realization, this pursuit of seeing God and experiencing God became the means of grace that freed him to it from his bondage to pornography. I wonder what difference that made in his preaching. What difference did that make in his marriage? Could he now look his wife in the eyes and love her for who she was? What difference did that make for him as a father? Was he able to come alongside his sons and daughters and gently help them in their own struggles because of the mercy and grace he was experiencing? What difference would it make in your family, in your marriage, in your relationship with your neighbors? If you were a man or a woman who really believed that the truly flourishing life is a life of purity and that Jesus is able by his grace to work in you what he has already accomplished for you on his cross. Our greatest good is to see God. It's not the condition of our eyes, but the condition of our hearts that determines our vision of God. So as we come to the table, let's thank him for the greatest grace that Jesus gave himself for us to purify our hearts and that his spirit is working in us to help us cleanse ourselves from everything that is impure. Believers, as we take into our hands this cup and this bread, Jesus says that this is the new covenant in his blood when he 
eats this meal with his disciples at the Last Supper. And in the new covenant, God promises he will give us purity of heart. He says in the new covenant, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. And in the prophet Ezekiel, he says that he will cleanse us from all our uncleannesses. It's like new covenant promise, purity of heart. It's a gift from the Savior. If you have received this gift from him and if you trust him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, he welcomes you to come. This is one of the means of grace by which he wants you to see God and to experience God right now through the word and then through the sacrament. He wants us to be a time of communion with him. So as we prepare to take this bread and this cup, I'd invite you to just pray a prayer that God has given us for purity of heart. This comes from Psalm 86, verse 11. Let's just express this as our heart's desire as we prepare to eat the bread and drink the cup together. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Let's take a moment to pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are utterly pure and faithful. You have clean hands and a pure heart. You've never lifted up your soul to anything that is false. You've never sworn deceitfully. There's not a, a hint of hypocrisy in you. You are a pure, unblemished lamb who took away the sin of the world. And you took away our sin and our shame when you gave yourself for us to redeem for yourself a people who are now pure. And Lord Jesus, we long for this gift of purity to become ever increasingly our experience so that we may, ex we may see more and more of your glory in this life and then in the life to come face to face with you how sweet it will be. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that on the night you were betrayed, you yourself took bread. And after you had given thanks, you broke it and you said to your disciples, this is my body, which is for you. Jesus, right now, as we take this bread into our hands, we remember you. We love you. We feast on you by faith. And we do so in remembrance of you. Let's eat together. And Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we thank you that your blood has washed away our sin, my sin. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. And we respond and say, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. I want to be single-minded in my pursuit of you. Thank you that this cup is the new covenant in your blood. And in that new covenant, you promise 
that I will be merciful toward your iniquities and remember your sins no more. So we could say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We praise your name together as we drink this gift. Let's drink the cup of salvation. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup,